This is Michael Easley in context. Follow Michael on Twitter, at Dr. Easley. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Well, it's a delight to have Rosemary Hamadi in studio today. Rosemary, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I know you're jet lagged. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Rosemary, you grew up in uh, East Africa? Yes, I did. Where was home? In a town called Kakamega. Kakamega. The population? Um, Not big when I was born. It was like maybe about 300,000 people. 300,000. That's Mm -hmm. pretty large. Well. Today, it's what? Oh, it's more than a million. A million. Mm -hmm. And you you had a hard beginning. Yes. You were one of nine children? Yes. So were you one that had to take care of your siblings? Mm, I think most of them took care of me. Okay. Because I was the middle guy, child. Mm-hmm. I was number five. Number so five. I had four ahead of me, four behind me. Are all of them living? No. No. Four have gone to be with the Lord. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you grew up in a big family. Yes. Um, tell us about what it's like to be a little girl in a big family in Sudan. Um. You are ignored, you are neglected mm-hmm. by many. They don't think you need to be where the adults are. They don't think you can say anything in front of adults. You always have to be in the background or nowhere near there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did in, in your home, did the men eat first and the women eat later and the children after that? Um, what I remember is my dad would be given his food separately. Mm-hmm. So that even if he wasn't there, his food would be kept for him separately. And mm-hmm. then all of us would sit around the table and eat from one plate. From one plate? Yes. What was what were your primary staples? It was um, food we call ugali. Ugali? Ugali is um, cornmeal. Cornmeal. And most of the time, my dad would buy meat, beef. He always brought beef home, and then we would have vegetables. So we, most of the time we had ugali, meat, and vegetables for, st- for dinner. Do you still make ugali? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Just to remember, right? Yes. <laughs> Just to remember what it was like. Yeah. Now, we're going to fast forward, and then we're going to go backwards. You have four grown daughters. Yes. And you're a single parent. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about where your daughters are now, and then we'll go back in time a little bit. So okay. where are they now? They're all in Nairobi. Uh, three of them working. Uh, full-time, two of them are working. Part-time, one. The other one just completed university, and she's graduating on Friday this week. Oh, fantastic. Will yeah. you miss it? Yes, I will. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, but I'm sorry you'll yeah. miss you. Yeah, so... The one graduating is one of the twins, one of the youngest. And her twin sister, she took a course where she was not allowed to take the the same number of uh, units. So she's completing her her course on the 20th of December. So she won't graduate until next year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, Prudence, who is the eldest, is working. Amanda is working. And she's also graduating with a master's degree on Friday. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh-huh. So, how, I mean, that's hard enough for any single mom, but in your context, it's even 
I, I would suspect very unusual. <laughs> yeah, everybody thinks I have performed beyond expectation. Yes. But I I know it's God who has mm-hmm. brought me this far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not me. How old were you when you got married? I was about 21. 21. And yeah. your husband was how old? About 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you had a rough start. Uh, the first five years were okay. Maybe I was just ignorant. I didn't know what marriage was about. But I, I, I thought I was happy those five years. But thereafter, it became really rough. And I lived with Innate, not knowing and understanding that it was abuse until much later. And when I realized that is when I took the step to move out with the mm-hmm. girls. Yeah. So you were there five years and you had the daughters how close together? Mm, the first two came 14 months, 14 months in between. Yeah. Then after my second born, the twins came four years later. Four years. Mm-hmm. So you were leaving with infants. Yes. Now, where where is your spiritual life at this time? Mm, I would say fulfilled. Um, happy where I am spiritually. Uh, I'm sorry. Where were where was oh. your spiritual life when when you leave with mm-hmm. four young girls? Where is Rosemary in her spiritual life? Oh, it was hard. Uh, I really got tired spiritually. I got tired emotionally. I got tired physically. So I was like not there, and yet I had to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When did you come to know Christ? Uh, in 1982. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, it's, it's a scenario I think I got saved out of uh, fear. Because at the time I got saved, we had several family members dying. Every year somebody died <clears throat> in the family. And I remember my, my uncle's wife, who was a Christian. She's actually the one who led me to Christ. She asked after we had just buried one of my cousins, very close cousin of mine. And she said, okay, right here as we sit here, I'm sure many of you are asking uh, who next? Mm-hmm. Because it had become like a pattern. Supposing you are the next one to go, are you ready? Where will you go? Will you go to heaven? Will you go to hell? I was so afraid. Mm-hmm. And through that fear, out of that fear, I gave my life to Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how old, how old were you then? I was about 25. 25. Mm-hmm. So you, you have been married yes. for four years and mm-hmm. you hear this story. Mm-hmm. And you've got uh, you've got three children at that or two children at that point. Mm-hmm. So how did this affect your husband? Oh, he wasn't happy he, because he never allowed us to go to church. And I thought it was the right thing for us to go to church for me to take the children to Sunday school and start learning about Christ because I had grown up in a Christian home, only that I had no personal relationship with Christ. So it was very difficult for me not to go to church because we did that every Sunday. And now that I've even given my life to Christ and uh, he won't let us go to church, that was very difficult for me. So 
How, how did you explain this to your girls, or did you even try? No. Um, much later, I had to explain to them. But uh, one of the things, I think it was out of God's wisdom. He was friends with a certain pastor, and I asked him if he could go to that pastor's church. And all he could do is drop us there, go away, then come back to pick us up. So that is how it all began. And when he be- he started being very physical, you know, it became very difficult for us to even communicate. So I would just live with the girls and go to the church where we go today. Even today? Yeah. We still, we still go to the same church. Not the one of his friend, right. but the church where we go now. I just decided it's not about a human being, it's me and God, and my children need to know who their God is. So we would just go, leave him there. Sometimes he would be like, I must take you and pick you up. So he did that for a time. I think he got tired and let us go. Mm-hmm. But it was hard. It was difficult, very difficult. <clears throat> How does a mother raise four daughters on her own in Sudan? Most of the mothers raise their own children because the men are gone to fight. Maybe they've gone to hunt. Maybe they've gone to do, maybe they live with other wives. So it is a common thing in South Sudan for women to bring up their own children. Were you in like a compound area with other women? Who, me? Mm -hmm. You know, I I grew up in Kenya, not in South Sudan. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it was... uh, (coughs) I I um I learned all this about the Sudanese women bringing up their own children when I started working with them about 17 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So th- they do everything for themselves and that is why it is so difficult for them to provide for the families. All they can do is wake up in the morning, get maybe a bucket of water to use for the day mm-hmm. and look for ways and means on how to find at least one meal for the day for the children and herself. Yeah. So it, it is hand to mouth. Yes. Sometimes they go without. Let's go back to, um, you worked with your husband for a number of years. Yes. Tell us about that. After I got married, it was just after high school. I didn't have any training, any professional training. And he asked me if I could help him in his office. He's, he's, a, he's a lawyer by profession. And I agreed. So most of the time he gave direction on how I should do things. And um, he, he, he was very supportive at the time. So I worked for, with him for 12 years. Wow. Even through the painful moments, I, was, I still worked with him. And uh, I got to a stage because it became really bad to me. And I decided maybe it was time for me to quit. And no, before that, (coughs) I decided to go to college. And uh, I went to train as a teacher. I did a degree. This is in Kenya. Yes. Mm -hmm. I did a degree in education. And uh, when I graduated, and went back to his office. He wasn't happy that I went back. So I remember one time he actually asked me to leave his office and go away. 
And it was at that time I just prayed. I said, Lord, you need to give me a job now because I knew I needed to look after my girls. Mm-hmm. So I said, God, you have to give me a job. So the following morning, I actually went back to his office. And I remember one of his clients coming. He was a young man. And he came and asked me, Rosemary, have you ever looked for a job? Have you ever wanted to work for somebody? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm looking for a job. Then he, he's like, give me your resume. So I actually printed it at that time and gave him. And in the same day, an organization calls me and asks me to go for an interview. So I go for this interview and uh, I'm interviewed and they tell me within two weeks we shall ask you to come and sign your contract. I waited for two weeks. They didn't call me. Uh-oh. When I checked with them, they told me they had found somebody else. So I, I waited and uh, six months down the road, the same oh. organization calls me. <laughs> <laughs> and say, he asked me to go. So I go one afternoon and they ask me, are you ready to start work? <laughs> so I, was this a government organization? <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was a non-profit. <laughs> Almost, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I start working. I just called him and told him I've started, I got a job, started working. Yeah. So how do you get from there into the kind of ministry you're doing? How do you get from, first of all, from Kenya to Sudan? Um, I worked for this organization that called me that afternoon for four years. And then I worked without taking any vacation. My job was very involving. And every time I asked for leave, I would be given like two days. But they didn't know what I was going through back home. So I I really got tired and I resigned. I just prayed. I said, I think I need to take a step back and figure out where God would have me go mm-hmm. next. And so, and I decided to go and spend time with my dad because by that time my mama had already passed on. So I went home and while I was at home, one of the girls, I think I called home, And one of the girls tells me, oh, your former boss has been calling you. He says he wants you to help him do something. So I'm like, who is that? And she says, it's your former boss at MAP International. So Ahuma, they knew him. So he said, you come, he would like you to help him do something. And so I'm like, what? So I called, I called the number he had left. And he told me, World Relief is opening an organization to work in South Sudan to help the people in Pochala and in Vietnam. So I told him, no, I just want time for myself because I just stopped working and I'm tired. I don't Mm -hmm. think I want another job Mm -hmm. now. And he said, Rosemary, please just come, even if you don't want to work come and help me interview staff. So I told him to give me two weeks. I came back to Nairobi and uh, we interviewed staff, hired some of them, and he still insists, Rosemary, please, I want you to give me just one month. Work for one month. If you don't like it, I'll (laughs) let you go. (laughs) 
I don't want to interview you because I know what you are capable of. So mm-hmm. please come and help me. So I decided, okay. He's pleading so hard. He's Maybe, persistent. Yeah. So I I accepted and immediately I said I would. He tells me, okay, the staff we hired, you have to make sure they travel to South Sudan and I'm going I've never known how people go to South Sudan. He said, I know you can find out and I know you can do it, so I'll not tell you how to do it. Wow. <laughs> so he throws me like <clears throat> in the lake. I don't know how to swim, but he says, I know you can do it. Mm-hmm. And what I want you to do is take over my job when I leave the organization. I want you to take over my job. I'm going, no. So I had to find ways and means to send stuff to South Sudan. And they went. A few weeks later, he asked me to accompany him there. That was way back in 1998. Wow. So I go to South Sudan and we get to Vietnam. And I think that was the day my heart remained there. Mm. Because I saw these little children, their mothers, their fathers, everyone, none of them had clothes they all looked like they would die the next moment. Mm. And I just looked at me and said, back home, we have so much. And I prayed in my heart and said, God, if you brought me to see this, I hope you are also saying there is something I can do to help Mm. somebody here. And that was it. And since that time, my heart has remained there. There are times I've tried to leave South Sudan, especially when I was with World Relief. I just got tired again. I was like, I can't do it anymore. I would go down to my computer, write my resignation letter, and out of the blue, somebody walks in. How are you? What are you doing? I'm writing my resignation letter. No, wait a bit you have another job? I'm like, no. (laughs) And then it just went on and on. And with time, God has really just connected me with the people of South Sudan. I don't think I want to leave anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) And I think God is saying every day to me that there is still something I want you to do for my people in South Sudan. And that's why I'm there. Now, give give our listeners a, a little picture of South Sudan and Vietnam because this is a war-torn area. Yeah. Civil war on and off. Mm-hmm. Still very tense now. Mm-hmm. Give us a little history. When we first went to South Sudan, you know, there was fighting, there was famine, which was all over in the media. And I think that was the first reason Wild Relief actually moved into South Sudan. And while we were there, I remember some people from within that community. There was a man called Carobino. Carobino used to fight everybody. He used to kill people. And I think at one point, his own people, his own army within that area actually got tired with him. They killed him and threw his body in the forest in that place. And it happened when we were, while we were there. Mm. Um, many times, while... We would be at church on a Sunday morning. Bombs would be dropped. And we had been told to build bunkers so that when that happened, we would actually go under. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, with time we we knew the sound of the plane that would come and throw bombs and at one point it actually changed it became a little peaceful but you are just not sure what will happen next never know because you you would be like no it's okay you get to a point where you are saying no there is it is peaceful then out of the blue the bomb drop and uh, it it spread it spread to everywhere in south sudan but what saddens me is after the independence one would have imagined that they would uphold the peace and um what year was the independence um they signed the they signed a peace accord in 2005 and then they got their independence in 2011 and within less than 3 years they went back fighting each other mm-hmm. so one wonders what is it that is missing in their so-called peace which was signed and the independence they received from the north that makes them go back to fight one another and that is where i come from to say investing in the lives of the children of South Sudan is the most important thing now because the majority of the adults in South Sudan are not educated mm-hmm. so they get very physical that is how they resolve their issues but if we invest in the lives of the children these children will grow up knowing something different that they can sit around the table and discuss issues and resolve them they'll not be as physical they'll use their intellect they'll use their reason to solve issues which is so different from the way their fathers their grandfathers are doing and not that we ignore the adults they are there they are the ones taking care of these children but the children are going to help them maybe do things differently yeah All right, Rosemary, let's talk about your new organization called Partnerships for East Africa Community Empowerment Peace. What is Tell us uh, about Partnerships in East Africa for Community Empowerment. Mhm. And in the mission, what are you trying to do? We are trying to reach out to the children of South Sudan right now in the refugee camp in Northern Uganda. How many children are in that refugee camp? Oh, there are very many. Um I know the number of children who are aged between 4 and 6 and have come to be registered to go to school there are more than 400 okay. but those who are under 4 years and above 4 uh, above 6 years are just too many and this is just in one camp and yet there are 13 camps in refugee camps in the area Do you have an idea what the total population of the 13 camps would be? Not less than 800,000. 800,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how many what's the survival rate in those areas? Well, there's a lot of food and good living in northern Uganda. There's a lot of fresh food they can get and if they got sick, I think the the UNHCR has organized medication for them. So they are okay the only fear is abduction of the children if they are left on their own they'll be abducted in those in those camps most of the children are unsupervised yeah all the time all the time mm-hmm. 
So there's food, there's shelter, but no adult supervision. Yeah, shelter, not shelter. One would look at and say, yeah, but... Plastic. Basic uh, shelter. Mm -hmm. Well, what the UN did this time, they allocated them pieces of plots and they asked them to build the tukuls themselves. So they have put up their own tukuls. And everyone in northern Uganda uses uh, bricks to build. Whether they are baked or not, they they actually make bricks to build their houses. So everyone has a tukul. Everyone has a roof. And, um, yeah. So what what are you trying to accomplish with these children four to six years of age? I would like them to have access to quality education and um, go back to South Sudan after they are educated mm. to transform their nation mm. because I believe that is the hope for South Sudan now. Yeah. So how does, how does peace, how do you move into that... Um, environment with the gospel how do you how do you bring christ in that in that setting um one of the things we do we identify a church that we would work with on the ground and right now we have the episcopal church which is the anglican church from south sudan that is in that camp and there is a pastor who is very effective that we are working Mm. with so everything we do we do it in collaboration with the church on the ground so that the same children who go to this school actually are the same ones who go to the church and we are working with the pastor to see how we can also train the pastors on the ground so that whatever we are teaching the children it's passed on to the people who come to the church and the ones in the community so what's happening the children are in school. They just closed school actually last week. The church is there, and part of the money fellowship gave us, we helped them put up a roof mm-hmm. uh, for the church. And uh, we are looking at the church right now as a very strong partner of peace on the ground. Because if we have to get to the people, it is only this church and the leadership of the church that will take us there. So a six-year-old finishes this quality education at what at what age? Well, we 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 do it according to the uh, curriculum of Uganda. Okay. So there is primary school which goes up to grade seven. Right. Then they go to high school for four years, and they would go to university depending on how they perform for another four years, and when they complete, hopefully. That time they can go back home and rebuild their nation. It's a long process. It is, it is. And the other reason we are there, I've talked with the, with the pastor, I've talked with the parents of the children, especially the men, and they are saying, given what happened after the independence, they were asked to go back home. They went back, thought their children would get education. But within less than three years, they had to run away again. Mm. So they have made up their mind. Even if the men go back, they will leave their wives and children in northern Uganda because they want their children to get education. And they say even if it takes 20 years, they would rather have their children there. And so what we are doing with the children is going to be a long-term process Mm -hmm. to ensure that they get what their parents would like them to achieve. 
Well, if your heart is still there and you're working with these children, trying to give them education, mm -hmm. teach them about the Lord, what does it look like? What, what does, and I hate to use the word success, mm -hmm. but obviously you're trying to see transformation on a, on a grand scale. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you begin to measure for Rosemary, not for Western, you know, mindsets, but how does Rosemary measure this is worth my time and my energy and the fundraising and the travel and all that? How do you measure that? One day at a time. I just want to do things one day at a time. So that if I have to invest in a child today, I want to do it with everything I have. If I can't do it tomorrow, somebody else can pick it up. And how long will you do one day at a time? Every day. Because I don't know what tomorrow holds. If God gives me life tomorrow, I do it again. But I have learned to do things like I would never, I won't do it again tomorrow. I just want to achieve what I have to achieve today. If tomorrow I'm given life to do it again, I'll do it. But I work as though I will not have time to do it tomorrow so that I don't live in a world of regret. That I wish I did it yesterday. I want to do it today. All that I can. Rosemary Hamadi. Yes. Thank you for being on In Context today. Thank you. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com. Subscribe to our newsletter for the latest news and information. Special thanks to our producers, Nicholas Peaks and Joe Pangalo. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.